When was the last time you took a shower? This morning. <laughs> what day is it today? I don't even remember. I don't even remember I took a shower at home. I washed my face this morning, if that counts. Oh man, it's been a while. Wednesday morning, two days ago. Uh, Tuesday. I've been baby wiping it. Showers are boring. An actual proper shower has definitely been about three, four days ago. And we're smelling quite bad. I want to jump in the lake. We are going to jump in the lake. Each year since 1984, an annual miracle of faith, fellowship, and music known as the Cornerstone Festival takes flight. We're taking a look back at an event unlike any other. Who was that guy? I wonder whatever happened to him. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson. This month marks 10 years since the final Cornerstone Festival graced the rolling hills of West Central Illinois. And while the world is full of music festivals, there's never been anything quite like Cornerstone. From its deeply countercultural roots and its relentlessly progressive aesthetic, to the simple but radical gospel sensibility operating in its DNA, Cornerstone was unique. It propelled numerous artists into long careers, it gave life and momentum to record labels, maybe even entire genres, and stood for 29 years as an example of glorious, messy, radical, barely functioning beauty and grace. It's not an exaggeration to say that the Cornerstone Festival impacted my life in massive ways. As we'll talk about later in the show, the first three festivals and the months between completely altered the trajectory of my life spiritually, relationally, and vocationally. So you came back from, from the first fest. Uh, did you go to work for Wheaton Religious right away? No, I didn't. Um, I did come home and start writing this thing that later somebody called my manifesto. It was, um, and I wrote a, a, in a notebook sort of what I thought needed to happen in order for bands like 77s to be famous. <laughs> it was kind of like what a teenage kid would think. For this very different episode of the True Tunes podcast, we have gathered a ton of clips, some from a documentary film I made about the fest 20 years ago, and many more from other sources. Bruce combed through hundreds of hours of fan-sourced video and audio, and also turned up rare television coverage of the festival, including coverage of the inaugural 1984 event in Grays Lake, Illinois. One of the most unique aspects of an event like Cornerstone 84 is the strong sense of community that emerges when people come together for a common purpose. For three days in June, Lake County Fairgrounds became home to people from all over the world. Fort Scott, Kansas. Buffalo, New York. Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, Milford, Michigan. I come from Switzerland. We've also invited some of the people closest to the formation and production of the festival to offer their reflections as we look back. We'll check in with Resband's Glenn Kaiser and former Cornerstone Magazine editor John Trott in one conversation, and former Res drummer and festival director John Heron elsewhere. We also got some audio postcards from you, our listeners, to sprinkle in amongst the interview clips and musical moments. Within 48 hours of being at the festival grounds, I was clogging on stage with Chagall Guevara. That was the same day I realized I hadn't eaten solid food in three days, merely running on adrenaline and frozen lemonade. Late at night sometimes, I still hear the faint sounds. Clog! Clog! Clog's dead! Ah! 
When I was on staff at the festival, I used to create what we called video scrapbook DVDs. Well, maybe what you are about to hear could be considered a sort of audio scrapbook, a headphone documentary designed to help us remember what happened between 1984 and 2012, what it meant, and what it might mean for us today. I'd love to see something come again. I'm, I'm discouraged by the political discourse in this country. Uh, I'd like to think that we could put those things aside and just get together and fellowship and have fun and enjoy great music. And a little heads up, like the festival itself, this special episode is a bit of a beast. We've broken it into three chunks, but well, let's just say I'm glad we're getting this out to you all ahead of some road trips and a holiday weekend. Whether you choose to listen in bits and pieces or as one long adventure is up to you, but grab yourself a lemon shakeup and a ribeye sandwich and make yourself comfortable, or maybe go find yourself a really hot, dusty, and uncomfortable place if you want that cornerstone immersive experience, because the adventure takes off right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping. Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush from Columbus, Ohio. I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I've also left a rating and review of the show at Apple Podcasts. Really wasn't that hard. It didn't cost me anything. But this show means a heck of a lot to me. And I know that reviews and ratings make a big difference when it comes to how and if others discover these conversations. Would you take a few minutes, maybe even while you're listening, if you're not driving, of course, to leave a rating and a review? Even if you don't listen on Apple Podcasts, the reviews posted there push out the podcast to platforms all around the world. Oh, and take some time to tell your friends about the show. Let's drive the numbers up together. Thanks. I was thrilled to get Glenn Kaiser and John Trott together for a conversation about Cornerstone. The first voice you'll hear, other than mine, will be Glenn's. So let's step into the virtual True Tunes interview suite and back in time as we try to get a bit more of a handle on the beast that was Cornerstone. We're coming up on, uh, or by the time people are hearing this, it's been 10 years since Cornerstone Festival ended. And uh, I know that it was absolutely formative for me in a lot of ways. So uh, we're taking some time to reflect on what Cornerstone was, uh, and also not just to think nostalgically, but also to think proactively and f- even, you know, future imaginatively. <laughs> what what could happen? What should be happening? What might we do in the absence of something like Cornerstone? And there's some things I, I want to drill into a little bit about the roots of both Jesus People USA and what ended up leading to the Cornerstone Festival. So tell me about the earliest days of Jesus People and how the idea of community and culture were gelling together. I know that uh, some of the Jesus people went to England and were doing something that ended up becoming Greenbelt. And, you know, so tell me about that and how festivals and arts and rock and roll and the counterculture and Jesus, how that all kind of played together for you guys. Maybe Glenn, start with you because you were in the band doing that. And then I want to hear from, from John Trott as well. I would say this, it, was, it wasn't thought about very deeply bunch of young Christians were involved in the Jesus people in Milwaukee and all of a sudden bands sprung up. Uh, Resurrection Band was one of those uh, early on. 
But out of the Jesus people in Milwaukee, there were three teams that went out. There was a graduation from our Bible school, and one team, as you say, went over, uh, Jim Polisari and his group, went over to, ultimately, to, they ended up in the UK, in, in England, and had a vision for what became Greenbelt Festival. I mean, they, they started it. Uh, Henry Wong, who was for many years the director of Cornerstone of our Cornerstone Festival that Jesus People USA put on, uh, was a part of that movement. Of course, Woodstock had happened, and all the other mainstream festivals. And so the idea was find a, find a place to go, and they found a farm field, and a landowner willing to give it a roll, brought in the porta port toilets, and you know, put built a stage and totally grassroots, a uh, bunch of Jesus freaks. And the punchline is, is that it was the first of its kind. I don't know of any other festival on earth that was quite like Greenbelt, and it progressed over the years. Um, but it was really uh, because of what Jesus had done in in our lives, and we wanted to share the gospel. Very simple. We saw the dysfunction in the church, and so that kind of spawned um, a number of festivals around the world. And as time went on, folks like Greenbelt and ourselves at Cornerstone Festival, it's like lit when we say you're, you're all welcome, we literally meant everybody. So at the end of the day, this idea of the arts, including music, but also the fine arts, uh, you know, painting, the Imaginarium, we had a Cornerstone Festival of films, you know, when we had speakers at Cornerstone Festival, we brought in people and, and dealt with issues that most mostly in the church, in any part of the body of Christ, or most of it anyway, these things weren't going to be discussed. And they weren't going to be discussed that way. That was the gist of it. It was a burden right. to reach people with Jesus and the, the simple good news of Jesus. But we also understood the need for discipleship and right. to instruct and teach and bring a, a disparate people and voices in. In the early 1970s, as the peace train ran out of gas for many hippies and counterculture types, a sort of revival gripped several U.S. cities. Having experimented with drugs and free love, thousands, maybe millions of young people turned to the long-haired, radical, revolutionary figure of Jesus. We were all pretty much freaks, hippies, came out of the street, you know, doing dope, living for pleasure, I guess, you know. Came to know the Lord and what do we do now? And it was like, read the Bible and apply it. Lord, we dedicate this cause, this purpose of why we're here to you and to your glory, and not for us and not for an organization or just a group of people that gather together. We give it to you, Father, and ask for you to have all the praise, all the glory, all the attention this weekend. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this honor, Lord God. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. I think for me, uh, you know, the funny thing about history is you keep reinterpreting it 
via the lens of the present. And so I was quite a romantic about the Jesus movement. Uh, And in some ways I still am. I'm not saying that I've I've abandoned ship uh, in my head or my heart regarding the Jesus movement. Our journey was one in which we tried and and we failed sometimes too. I would I will say that right up front um, to bring a transformative power of the gospel that was culturally transformative, not just appearance transformative. Right. Um, and I think I was very involved at the festival, just like we were with Cornerstone Magazine, and trying to do that cognitively you know trying to feed people's heads <laughs> that's the old right. the old hippie phrase um and, and let that through the head into the heart let's let's move you into a new way of seeing a new you know a jesus way of seeing what we were trying to do with the magazine and with the festival particularly with our seminar tents that we set up was to pull that off what i recall as a teenager going to those classes was that there could be some very, you you might generously call it spirited discussion. You might call them just flat out arguments. <laughs> um, and, and and I went to seminars where I was like, yeah, hey, I don't want to go here. I mean, I did go to things that I needed to hear that I knew I agreed with to just reinforce things sometimes. But I wanted to go hear those things that were going to provoke me and challenge me because I knew I was in an environment that was rare that I wasn't going to get to see that very often. And so I really... Only later did I realize how how unique that was. Really, the majority of the Christian subculture shifted from this kind of counterculture idea in the 60s into more of a subculture idea by the 80s. And Cornerstone was never really doing that. It always felt more like this was really kind of the same culture we were all a part of. It was it was right in line with the music and the art and the fashion and all that stuff. And it was going to tackle the issues that we were actually dealing with in the real world in a way that we needed to have that iron sharpening iron, even if it caused sparks to fly. According to Glenn Kaiser, the role of the musician in today's culture is an important one. A pastor in the Jesus People USA Fellowship, Glenn's understanding of music and his commitment to biblical discipleship, coupled with a pastor's heart, makes him one of the most unique individuals in Christian music today. His seminar, Music, Musicians, and Ministry. Some of us are cultural bigots, because we think straight conservative people. You know, God didn't, Jesus didn't die for, for yuppies in the suburbs. Well, he did. And your culture is no more holy than theirs is. And theirs is no more unholy, or yours is no more unholy than theirs. Again, not too tight, not too low, not too high. <laughs> if it's not morals, don't worry about it. And yet try to be appropriate. Try to be appropriate. You know, I don't put my hair up 10 feet high to walk into, you know, First Baptist Sunday morning. If you just take in ministry through music, the Word of God, books, and you don't give out, you will become a spiritual glutton and you will become spiritually sluggish. God wants to fill our minds with wisdom and knowledge, with vision and purpose, with spiritual dynamic, that we can run and not grow weary. And I believe the fellowship together, praying with one another, sharing with one another, and making that an ongoing practice in our life is one of the basics for spiritual growth. My first burden, of course, is spiritual health, that they may know how to walk with God, they may get 
relationships healed. I think some of these young people will go back to their homes and have healing experiences with their parents and with their churches. What was Cornerstone Magazine relative to well, Res Band uh, and Jesus People? And what was Cornerstone Magazine relative to the festival? And how did that evolve? And how important was that to this thing working? I think our idea was just to make people think. Whether you agreed with us or not, we wanted to leave you going, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. Or I should think about that some more. Let me insert that there were two things that I think were really important in all this. We encouraged all the musicians all of them who we invited to the fest and all of the seminar leaders and speakers please if there's any way we can work it out for you to be around we encourage you to get as close and and sit sit down in the grass outside the tent uh, sit down you know meet people at the merch table and sign autographs and chit chat but hang out and interact with people for a while a answer their questions get to know people this is this is about people it's not only about art it's not only about speaking the challenge was to for some of these folks who some of them the just they happen to be particularly speakers happen to be a little bit more conservative in their natural culture they have all these subculture kids a lot of kids, young, and but some older uh, people, sitting in the grass outside the tent, 30, 40 of them, hashing over the issues. But some of those speakers basically begged us to, if they could come back year after oh, yeah. year because they didn't have that kind of opportunity uh, or openness in very many places where they went to, to speak and share. It's a, it was always about the Lord and about people and that openness to issues. This was like DNA for us. They may rock like hell, but they're the house band of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, the 77! That festival helped sustain some belief in ourselves as artists and people because uh, I would go there even without the band. I'd go there on my own, maybe play, play with Vector, Charlie Peacock or whatever. That was just a nice feeling because when you're at home, just being kind of a faceless entity, thinking your music isn't having any impact on anyone, it's nice to go someplace where all these people know who you are and also are telling you what your music actually meant. I think probably I remember the guys at, at the warehouse in Sacramento telling me that there was this Jesus Rock Festival. I think that was the way it was described to me. I, I was trying to, it said it was, it's sort of like um, a Woodstock with Jesus freaks. So many people come to the festival year after year, I think finally are starting to understand the, the format of our track seminars, what we're trying to do with our teaching, what we're trying to do with our music. Uh, it's a lot different than a lot of the other events that are going around the country. Uh, that's, so we're becoming more like a, a family in that way. People come back year after year and they're getting used to what, what's going on. They're catching the vision of it. We're all one Christian family in Christ. The brothers and sisters getting together. Every year it's been growing a little bit, I think by word of mouth, and people are just getting to know Cornerstone and what we're like and you know the nature of it. It's not just for green hair punkers anymore. You know? It's for the nice uh, youth group too. 
and the adults and the older people. We have grandparents come and stuff. So it's a, it's a nice event. Uh, we hope that, you know, somewhere along the line when people go back to wherever they come from, Iowa, Kansas, we draw from 40 states, some of this four days would go back with them. You know, it's kind of a lot like the old Bible camps. People get revived and, and challenged and hopefully some of that will carry them through. But some of the kids who don't have fellowship, maybe this is the one thing a year that helps carry them through the, till the next year. And whatever it takes to keep you going with the Lord, I think we want to do, and I think that's what makes it count. Cornerstone Festival, that spirit, the thing that I love about it the most, uh, is that let's have some collisions. Let's have a guy come in and teach on Christian nationalism, which we did way back when. Yeah, right. I mean, that, that topic got discussed way back when. And, um, but I'll tell you this, I don't think even we understood. I, I don't think we had any realization of how deep in the heart of, of what we called white evangelicalism that was embedded in what we thought we believed. There's different levels of maturity. And I mean, spiritual maturity, uh, knowledge of church history, of world history, engagement with people not like me, not like us, not like folks that I'm comfortable with, you know what I'm saying? And willingness to put yourself in a place to where you can actually have dialogue and you're not simply going there for your own monologue purposes. So we had people at Cornerstone who are, weren't believers. We had people who had fallen away. They had at one time had some sort of an understanding or a relationship with God or however you want to say it. We had people who were staunch on the right end of the spectrum politically or left end and a bunch of moderates and every kind of hodgepodge and all the rest, right? It takes so much patience and really an intentional willingness to be a statesman or stateswoman, you know, a person who's willing to be a peacemaker but not agree. And so the, a glimpse of that happened at Cornerstone Festival every summer and that's part of the reason why people came back. At the time, the only thing I ever thought was this. We are providing with this festival space and time for very disparate groups of people to actually hang together and maybe do more than show up at a concert and, and dig the music. And for me, at the time, we, at the very beginning, I thought, this is a miracle. For these folks who are so on opposite ends of the spectrum, theologically, politically, culturally, subculturally, for them to all come together and actually be able to have some dialogue now that's painful because of course your best friend may be going, what the heck are you doing hanging out with them?
John, I wanted to ask you, have you thought, um, when your imagination kicks in and you see kind of how things in the culture have evolved, how do you think the festival might have evolved and what, what might it have looked like as things had changed? Um, I, I don't know because I, I, I have a little bit maybe of a, a medium dark take on that at least, which is I think we would have ended up being marginalized. There was one point at which I think, you know, Christianity today and everybody would embrace Cornerstone and embrace Japuza for that matter as being, hey, you guys are really cool. You're the, you know, you're the, you're the cool kids on the block. And maybe to some degree, frankly, we believed it a little bit too much. Looking at it now, I think if we would have kept going and, and tried to be faithful to the journey we were on, I think as this Christian nationalism thing became more and more and more pronounced, that a lot of those, what the, the audiences would have shifted away from us. In fact, I think that started to happen, actually, uh, even before it was totally over. You know, so we would have, we as a community, I mean, Jesus people would have had to have grown um, and hopefully are growing in that as we try to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to loving our neighbor. I don't know what would have happened to us. There was a beautiful time there. I mean, the first time I, I got to go to Cornerstone for the whole festival, I went with a group of charismatic Catholic college students. You know, it was like, <laughs> great. I, I mean, I met everybody at the festival and to call it evangelical to me just meant these people take Jesus very seriously and want to have a Bible study and, and like be engaged yeah. with their faith in, in their mind. And they were willing to talk about evolution and they were willing. It wasn't about this political definition of evangelical. For me, it's the people that love Jesus. And I mean, they really do love Jesus and they aren't going to agree on everything, but you, you can sit there and you start talking and you go, Oh, you too. Oh, you too. It's, you know, you've had encounters with Christ. You've, you know, you've fed the hungry for Christ. You've, you've wept with somebody and Christ was in the heart of it. Uh, you're making community, which I think was the other huge factor with Cornerstone is it was just a little, you know, it was kind of a pup tent of community. You just, <laughs> it popped up and we had community for three or five days and then it was over and we all went away kind of wishing it could be permanent. Um, and God willing, maybe one day it will be. Anyway, those are the core issues that I think haunt us now. Let's be honest, there were churches who really had great hearts, more traditional, you know, institutional churches, and were open to the Jesus people, open to the young street Christians, and there were churches that would have never dealt with them at all. To talk about the history of the festival, there's kind of, it's, in fact, this is the way I look at the Jesus movement. I encountered Jesus in 1973, that's when I became a Christian. And I was out by myself at a guy's farmhouse and got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and it was flat-out mind-blowing, you know? And it was an encounter that changed my life. But the question is, 
how can we take what we got from the history of the Jesus movement or even the festival? We're there at that festival. We had those encounters. We had that wonderful, wonderful experience. How do we bring it into the now? How do we bring that into where we are right now with our eyes wide open? How do we win people to Jesus? How do we tell people about the incomparable nature of loving? It's a hard sell. You know, if, if I, as I was 16 in 1973, if somebody, if I was 16 now, get that out of my face. I know who you are and I know what you're selling. There are a lot of people, a lot of young people who are, they're flat out done, you know. How do we make an impact on that kind of a situation with what we know? And that's, I think, Cornerstone Festival gave us something beautiful and you know, because it was it was a God thing. First and most, it was there is a God, a supernatural, there is love, and he can be known. Cornerstone, the music was awesome, the teaching, the clashing, the friction that was that was life changing. The there was something there unique to this planet in my life was I slipped into that thing and every time I walked through the door it was like I felt that love and yes I felt it through the smiles of the people that I knew loved me and and then I felt the ability to love other people and to give them that experience but it was something deeper and bigger than that it was this love was accessible to outsiders insiders old people disabled people um, odd people that didn't fit in any kind of box and you just knew like this person if it wasn't for a community like like this this person would be utterly alone and the music often was an excuse I think to gather us together I loved it and it was important but it was really an excuse what we really were gravitating for towards was this love yeah so man it was just I thank you guys for for doing that Looking back now, you know, what would you like, just a brief kind of nugget, what would you like to say to people that, um, you know, what have you learned or what uh, what final kind of thoughts about um, the festival, lessons learned, anything like that from the from the rubble that, uh, that we can take mm. with us as we think about rebuilding, you know, what should we be doing in our own individual lives that can bring that little microcosm of that community into our street, into our home, into our relationships? When it comes to community, one of the most painful lessons to learn is that even at your best, you're going to hurt people. That's part of community, too. And you really are going to hurt people. Now, what does that mean? I mean, sometimes it means there's some communities that hurt people so badly and hurt so many people so badly, the best thing for that community is, is to go away. It probably is fatally broken in some way. Um, and so, to me, ultimately... And it's become a phrase for me. I actually, this is my own little original prayer to add to all those short prayers that are out there that are really good ones. This is my homely one. And that is, is you are closer than I imagine. I imagine you closer. 
And that's what I believe. I believe Christ is closer than we can possibly imagine. And guilt, it isn't that we aren't guilty, it's rather that we shouldn't get overly focused on it, but instead strive to do better, strive to get closer. How can we get closer to Jesus? How can we get closer to others? How can I find a way to get through all this this noise and, and cruelty to tell somebody about the God of love? I mean, or to show somebody the God of love and my own brokenness. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more of this Cornerstone Reverie right after this. Hey, this is Mark Feldbush, and I'm a supporter of the True Tunes podcast. I've been reading True Tunes since it was a print journal and first on the interwebs in the late 90s. When the podcast became a reality, well, I knew I wanted to be a part of this ongoing conversation. I'm glad to say that folks like me and many others Support the podcast with monthly donations of five, ten, even twenty dollars that help to cover the costs of producing and hosting the show. As a thanks for our support, we get early access to episodes and high quality lossless wave files of each episode that we get to download. We also have occasional Zoom meetups, some special live streams, discounts on TrueTune swag, and a whole lot more. You can join me and the other patrons by visiting patreon.com slash truetunes, or you can find the link on the show notes page. If an ongoing patronage thing isn't quite right for you, but you'd like to give a tip to help with the costs associated with this show, you can find links for that at the show notes page. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Ray, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. I also follow and listen to the weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. And boy, is it eye-opening. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts, and from across a wide range of genres, including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and more. I've discovered tons of new songs and artists, and have been reminded of things I love from long ago. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com, or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically every week. And don't miss the massive archive list, where all the previous lists get saved. It now features over 5,000 songs. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you discover them. Thanks. And now, back to our exploration of the festival that changed everything for so many of us. People on people, why can't you understand? 
One of the people I knew I needed to talk to for this project was my old boss, John Heron. Johnny was the director of the festival from the late 90s until its end, but even back when it first began, as the drummer of Res Band and one of the pastors at the Jesus People USA community in Chicago, he was instrumental in its formation and direction. A big part of what we're trying to do is find and regather some of the old tribe and then welcome a younger generation into this, people that just never got the benefit. And so it being the 10th year since the final Festival. I know, I was surprised to Isn't hear that, that when you said that. <laughs> that I'm like, really? Has it been that long? <laughs> I know. Isn't that wild? Jeez. 2012 to 2022. Yeah. I, just, I couldn't believe it either, but wow. we thought, well, we we can't let a marker like that go by without at least yeah. stopping and thinking a little bit about this and talking about Cornerstone and what the festival was, especially because a lot of people hear about it, but we're never there. And then those of us who were there, it's kind of like this big hole in our life <laughs> that we still can't yeah. get through the 4th of yeah. July weekend without, without uh, thinking about it. So, yeah, um, I, I do the same thing every summer. I start thinking about uh, the festival again. You know, those were some of the funnest and best years of my life. Yeah. First, if you could think back to when the festival was first coming together and your perspective mm -hmm. on that, what did it take to actually put a thing like Cornerstone on and how did that evolve over the years? By the time we started in 1984, I had been, you know, playing in res band for what, 12 years by then or something. We started in 72. I mean, you know, we were just in our infancy back then. We had played festivals uh, in the early 80s. I mean, one of the reasons that we did Cornerstone was through our experience at other festivals. Going to those festivals, I, I felt there was a hole in the gap. I mean, I think those festivals were like creation. We'd been to a couple times and, you know, they were doing a good job of what they were doing. But there was, you know, I remember Res Band always being scheduled around one or two o'clock in the afternoon because I, I think it was a little too threatening to maybe have rock and roll in the dark. You know, the kids <laughs> right. might start. I mean, really, that that's yeah. kind of the way yeah. it was. The, the dark was reserved for your more conservative artists. The rock yeah. and roll was always in the afternoon. And anyway, it just felt to me that there was uh, a need for something more. And, of course, Cornerstone, for better or worse, and I think it was mostly for better, was also very committed to um, wanting to kind of meld more in-depth teaching with music and artists that weren't maybe getting the attention that we, we felt that they needed. But the infrastructure part of it was something I always enjoyed. Even, you know, building the stage every year. I mean, of course, those first seven years, we were at Lake County Fairgrounds, which we had to get in and get out right. uh, within a few days, which I, I think is maybe even more typical than what most festivals, you know, later at the, when we had our own grounds, we got pretty spoiled. Uh, at the time we started the festival, I was I was full time traveling and doing with Res Band, uh, you know, or a lot anyway. It took up a good portion of our year, so we tapped Henry to be the director, and he was, you know, he was a great guy to do it. He was smart, uh, you know, super organized, and was a great guy to do uh, to to really run the day to day. You know, I was kind of the liaison between the organization that put Cornerstone on and Henry. You know, I was the guy who kind of, in some ways, was Henry's boss. Um, but, you know, he had a lot of, you know, freedom to 
run and organize the event as he saw fit. We really trusted what he did. And um, I'm still, you know, super grateful for all the years that Henry put in. You know, we, we would move out onto the grounds about, a. I think we'd only get there about a week or maybe four or five days sometimes, probably about a week before the event. And, you know, we built our own main stage back then. We didn't hire a company. We just ordered the scaffolding. We built it. A lot of the stuff was just uh, trial and error, but it was great. I mean, really, I, I miss those days. Of course, I was younger and more full of beans back then and had the energy and the strength to do it. Uh, I'm Lee Ash from Sixpence None the Richer, and Cornerstone is a very special place for us as a band. And me personally, we've been playing for at least nine years now in a row, I think. I think we started in 91 or 92. And... Um, just absolutely love it here and it's such a great environment and I feel really comfortable I feel comfortable walking around and and look forward to just kind of hanging around in the heat and the hay and the smell and the the whatnot and uh, just adore it and I think it's just a really special environment because uh, these are people of of God that put it on and are very careful about um, everything that goes into it and I think it shows it's a very sweet atmosphere and, and that's what makes it so special. A lot of artists have talked about how um, they always felt like Cornerstone was different for them because the organizers of the festival were artists and they actually knew what artists mm-hmm. needed. They, they felt like, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're one of us. They're not just people kind of mm-hmm. throwing, of us, throwing us out there to the wolves and they actually cared about things. And um, can you think of examples of ways that you, you oriented the festival well, to, to try to care for the artists? We tried to accommodate artists with the gear they wanted, you know, have a good selection of gear on the grounds and uh, meet special needs if we could. And we always, we try to get everybody as much as possible. It wasn't always possible to have a decent sound check and really not get rushed through it. We also tried to encourage the artists to come and stay multiple days and just enjoy the festival. In Cornerstone, there was definitely times where artists, a lot of artists stayed for multiple days, stayed right. the whole weekend, some of them. I mean, right. you know, you were there all those years. You know, uh-huh. Cornerstone was it was a little wild, a little crazy. Uh, I look back on it. You know, when, when, you, when you have something to protect, you, you have to start making more and more rules and worry about insurance and liability. And, of course, we were probably a little more homegrown, you know. I mean, we did... We did things that other festivals just, you know, they, they begged me not to do, like allow kids to swim in that lake or all of our generator <laughs> stages, and right. letting people come early two or three days and hang around the grounds. And, you know, we, we went so late at night. I mean, we'd have concerts going till two, three in the morning often. And so, you know, a lot of those things, people said, you know, you guys are out of your mind doing that stuff, you know, this. But I remember Tim Landis way early on told me, he was you from know, Creation Festival, right? Yeah, from Creation Fest. And, of course, Tim was kind of the, I mean, in some ways, he was kind of the godfather of this 
festival thing. He really had it down to a science. And Tim was very smart and always very, very kind. I always enjoyed working with Tim. But um, he told me, he said, you know, the the problem with Cornerstone is that it's run by a bunch of artists. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, literally, he told me that. He said, that, 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 that's you guys' You know, it's kind of like your best strength, but it's also your biggest weakness that, you know, you guys aren't like businessmen or, or you know, that kind of organizers that you're, you're, you're too close to it. But, you know, I, I, I shudder a little bit now as a, uh, you know, I'm older and, and uh, that, you know, some of the risk we took. But at the time, we just were dedicated to, you know, having fun, letting people kind of be who they were. I have some personal regrets, you know, things that I would have done different or things that I, I look back now that I think maybe we should have done different. But, you know, I don't know if everybody would agree with those. I guess that's true anywhere in life. I also have so many fond memories and yeah. feel like there was uh, it, it was blessed in a lot of ways. Tell me about the about the growth and if you expected that and what you thought was behind that growth. The first seven years we ran the event, you know, there at Lake County Fairgrounds. And uh, it, it felt like, you know, being close to a big city, having people being able to come for day tickets and not having to, you know, what was the right move. But we um, actually put together uh, like a little think tank down in Nashville there was a guy who ran a book publishing company, somebody from, I think, CAA uh, and uh, a couple of other folks and a, a pastor of a big church down there. And we went down, Henry and I did, and just kind of used them as a sounding board, like, what could we do better or different? And I remember the one thing that I left there with the most uh, imprinted on me was you should probably move the event out of the Chicago area. And that seemed like like horrible advice to me. I thought, well, really? Because, you know, we're right next to this. But they said, you know, really, Chicago, you're competing with all kinds of entertainment. You know, you've got everything going on, concerts every weekend, and, you know, this and that, and sporting events. And you're, you're so close, people can, you know, say, well, maybe I'll go Friday. Oh, no, well, I'll go Saturday. Or, well, I got too busy. And so the more we thought about that, it, we started thinking, well, may, maybe that's right. Maybe that's good advice. And then, of course, right after that, we got contacted by um, the Lake County Fair Board saying, guess what? We got annexed by Grays Lake. Grays Lake expanded their city boundaries, took over the fairground, which had always set right outside of the city limits, and said, uh, we have a 7 o'clock sound ordinance. You're no, no, no outdoor music after seven. 
were like, well, you know, when we don't even get going till seven. I mean, that, that just seemed like that was impossible. So they said, you know, we don't want to see you guys go, but at the same time, um, you know, and they, they, they did say, we'll give you a one year grace period that you can, uh, but after that you're, you're done. Uh, you know, you, if you're going to stay, you have to have your music over by seven o'clock <laughs> at night, outdoors music. So that, you know, obviously we were now looking for something else. And then a good friend of mine brought me a little ad out of the Chicago Tribune that said 580 acre campground uh, with 120 acre lake and a phone number. And we literally called him up. And it turned out it was a bank that had repossessed this little campground out, you know, south of Peoria there. And so we just drove out and looked at the place and we thought, this is just, this is perfect. This is what we want. And of course, back then, land was, was cheap, relatively speaking. I mean, we, right. we bought that place for, we bought it for $325,000, you know, almost 600 acres with a 120 acre lake in it. You know, we jumped on it and we actually didn't even use our grace period year we had. And, uh, you know, and it was a lot of hustle bustle to get it going out there. But um, uh, we, we did hope that it would, we, we also worried that it would maybe, you know, be our death. But at the same time, uh, we hoped that it would grow the event by that. Uh, by, you know, basically it was too far out of Chicago area to make it a day trip anymore. You know, it was a four hour drive. So uh, you kind of had to commit to the, to, to the whole event. I will never forget my first Cornerstone Festival experience. I was 17 years old. It was Cornerstone 1992. The end of the festival was the violet burning first time I'd ever seen intelligent lighting and the first time I'd seen that much fog in a tent and I remember standing in the middle of the fog drinking an ice cold cherry clearly Canadian with the scent of incense in the air and Mike Pritzel just singing his heart out and uh, it was such an intense memory and it's really shaped my expectations of what a musical experience could be and should be from then on. So many rich memories, but that's that's a deep one. were very, very wary and very, very cautious um, as to how to receive the, the people that came to Cornerstone who were dressed very, very unusually according to Bushnell standards. They did look a little different, not that there wasn't some rather different looking people in Bushnell. There were an awful lot of people who came to the festival who had unusual hairdo. Uh, they had uh, unusual clothes. What really surprised me was, was some of the uh costumes that people wear in their hairdo. You know, it was very spiky and, and, you know, really colored. He had a big cone shaped 
about three foot above his head to a point. Now we see more of the tattoos and the, the body piercings and the heavy cable, you know, metal ropes and cables and stuff. They came in many times in automobiles packed with all kinds of uh, suitcases and tents and, and at least six people to every vehicle it appeared. A lot of people were, were concerned because they thought, oh, it'll be drugs and rockers. Even though they, they say they're Christian, you know, that's probably not right there from Chicago. I think we're all a little bit apprehensive as far as just not knowing anything about the group and hearing the vast numbers that they had and stuff like that to be coming to town. There was that rumor it was cultural. It was almost like a Midwestern culture that was isolated, uh, much like it maybe hadn't changed for the last 50 years. Uh, and now you see all of the people coming who are talking about ro hard rock music, uh, rap music, uh, all the other kinds of music uh, coming to a, a Christian rock festival. And the police didn't have to worry about any fights, didn't have to worry about any uh, problems with traffic. Uh, the most serious problem was uh, how do you get there? We found two uh, high school girls walking from the train station to go out to the festival, not realizing that this part on the map was 20 miles. We just started driving our van in there when the train came by and we'd take people. So now, as it stands, I'm a world-renowned preacher. It went well, except we were out of stock on stuff. Our community found out that there was a financial gain. And so the gas station certainly put a sign up, said, welcome. Cornerstone, the grocery store and hardware stores. I know a lot of, a lot of the smaller stores thought that uh, it wouldn't be a great thing, but I did. Every person that ever had personal contact with someone who is a resident of Bushnell, it was always a polite, positive interaction. I think that everybody is uh, well pleased with the group and organization and the people that come. Somewhere in there, Henry had come and said, hey, my wife and I want to go on the mission field with Wycliffe Bible Translators. And, uh, you know, he'd been really faithful holding down the fort for years at Cornerstone. And Res Band had kind of begun to run its course, you know. We've been going strong for, you know, years and years. And I was ready to get off the road. So I, um, you know, I asked Henry if he could stick on one more year because we had a lot of stuff scheduled for Res Band coming up that year, but I knew it was going to be some of our farewell tours. So uh, he did. He, he hung in there one more year. He, he literally wrote me a book. He had like a big yeah. loose leaf notebook that with all the kind of every person we'd used, bands, this, that, every, you know, and he even had a big timeline. You know, here's where I usually start ordering this and that and how many of everything. So that, that was definitely a big help in getting involved in the nuts and bolts of it. But um, I wanted to expand the event, you know, by bringing in Tooth and Nail Day, uh, you know, eventually bringing in the generator stages. I mean, maybe some of those changes that helped it really grow also in the end maybe maybe helped it was part of its demise. I don't know. I mean, the, the bread and butter of... Christian festivals was attracting organized Christian youth groups. And of course the gatekeepers are, are pretty conservative and, and I don't, I, I don't blame them. You know, they want to feel like if I'm going to send off, you know, 15, 20 teenagers somewhere, it's going to be the adults are really in charge. And of course, um, no doubt at Cornerstone, you know, uh, 
when you went to most Christian festivals, from the moment you pulled in, you knew the adults were in charge. Yeah. I mean, from people directing you where you could park, what you couldn't walk on, where you could go, checking every ticket. You know, it was obviously that this isn't organized by the adults. Uh, you went to Cornerstone. You kind of, you might have wondered if anybody was in charge. <laughs> Truth is, that's a little bit of who I am. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't mind the organized chaos. I kind of thrived in it. I loved it. We we wanted to have a festival uh, that was kind of for everybody, uh, and and for people who, that weren't necessarily believers. You know, I I knew that. You know, I grew up in the church. I had a lot of questions as a teenager. And I also was naughty as a teenager. I mean, I wanted to have freedom. I didn't want to go to some kind of event that where every you know everything was just laid out. I wanted the unknown. I wanted to be able to stay up late, run around, act crazy. I mean, I remember one of my, I remember literally being in my office, the little mobile trailer I used as an office on the event, at the event, and I I looked out my window, and right behind us was a roll of of those porta potties, those plastic porta potties. And sure enough, I see some kid jump up on the porta potties and he runs down this row, about 20 of them, and landing on each one and the roof like semi collapses and then pops back. And it's like boom, 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 boom. And then at the very end, he just like fell right off and just did it. I mean, you know, eight feet and wham, hit the ground and got up and just ran off. And of course, within about a, you know, 10 seconds, you know, about five porta potty doors come flying open and people are looking like, what in the heck just happened? And I remember laughing my heart out. I, I just thought it was so funny. And uh, I thought, well, you know, hey, that's something I would have done. kind of nervous this first show we've been nervous for for a long time but we were really honored to play on this stage right here because many bands have played here and uh, um, it was an honor to be here and uh, play in front of this crowd here at cornerstone When the festival got so big in the early 2000s, the stakes really did get pretty high with it, didn't it? Like the, the cost got really high to run a festival that big. 
one of the advices that came to me from several people was never buy your own grounds. It's just way too expensive. It'll eat you out of house and home. You know, your rent, rent a property. Uh, don't, don't buy your own place. And of course, Cornerstone worked so well having our own place because, I mean, to be honest, we had very, very little regulatory scrutiny out there. I mean, nobody paid attention. We were out in the middle of nowhere. We could dig a hole the size of a house if we wanted and cover it up whenever we wanted. You know? So we enjoyed, we enjoyed the freedom of having so little anybody looking over our shoulders. We could take our time to set it up, tear it down, clean it up. But at the same time, it it did get expensive. I mean, there were years we spent forty thousand dollars on gravel for you know we had a, we had about five miles of gravel roads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spent you know eight or ten grand on sand every year for the beach, and uh, you know our electric bill there uh, was uh, sixty thousand dollars a year. And then we had um, more than one grounds caretaker. We had five, I mean, you know, keeping hundreds of acres mowed. Uh, we had groundskeeper with, you know, health care and, uh, you mm-hmm. know, this and that. And it, it, after a while, you know, maybe I didn't have the foresight to see it coming, but we just ended up creating something that in order to sustain it, it, it you know, it took, a, we had to have a good year every year or we got in trouble. I mean, the first seven years that we did this event in Lake County Fairgrounds, to be honest with you, we probably lost a million dollars over those seven years. It was not unusual to lose a quarter of a million dollars at a, at a year. But that wasn't really sustainable. We had to get it right. to a point where it could self-support. And uh, and we did hit that sweet spot there for a number of years where we kind of uh, we had some years where we actually made a little bit of money. Uh, and then we had years where it just kind of broke even. And then near the end, it, um, as the event got a little, a little freer, a little wilder, more, you know, late night, we faced the competition for that base group of the, uh, church organized church youth group. At the same time, it seemed like a lot of the mainstream rock and metal bands that had previously really only had a home at Cornerstone yeah, started yeah, to get yeah. picked up by the warped tour. And yeah. um, like even the, the smaller van bands were able to play clubs. Mm-hmm. And so it back when I was a kid going to Cornerstone, that's the only place you were going to ever see a lot of yeah, those bands yeah. was Cornerstone. And all of a sudden yeah. you can see them in your own hometown. Yeah. Uh, they began to get booked at other festivals too. You know, bands right. that were exclusively at Cornerstone every year began to get invited to other Christian events. So you're right. You can see a lot of these bands without having to come to Cornerstone. I was conststantly fussing with uh, that um, the warped tour. warped tour. I was constantly, you know, I mean, the Underos and even the Reliant Ks and the this and that. They were all, you know, uh, on the warp tour, and I had to negotiate with them to be able to get the band off the tour for you know a weekend even, and then get them back in. And, uh, yeah, that, that became a constant. And, and sometimes the band just couldn't get off, you know, so they had to decide, do we play Cornerstone or do we do a whole summer of Warp Tour? You know, 2001 was probably our biggest year. Uh, after that, I don't know if we ever totally collide. I, I think a couple of things happened. Of course, one, 9-11 just, you know, ruined a lot of things for a lot of uh, America. Uh, but that was the year that we had so many people show up that um, – 
we we were not prepared with the amount we our portable toilets uh we had been limping along all those years by hiring a smaller portable toilet company and as long as we hovered you know in that 15 to 18,000 you know he seemed to handle it but that one year we probably had about 30,000 people it was kind of a nightmare the portable toilets were uh were nasty and they weren't getting serviced as quickly as they should have been after that we went and hired a big company that does like mega events and brought in hundreds of toilets but i think there were some people who never quite recovered from that. I mean, I had people years later tell me, oh yeah, and I never went back after that. (laughs) I think the first time I did a Cornerstone gig, I was like 18 or 19 with Adam again, and we probably consistently play like every other year for ages. (laughs) Cornerstone's always one of our largest groups of people to play for and has become our core audience, our biggest supporters, our family.
I have people ask me this and I have for years, you know, because of how closely associated I always was with the festival, you know, like what, why couldn't it have shrunk? You know, maybe it could have, there are a couple things that, that converged at that point. No doubt. One was the fact that it had started losing money again. And even that last year when we trimmed the budget down, I still don't think it really broke even. And it was weighing on the, the community, the GC right. people community to have to pay, pick up the extras. To do a smaller version, we would have probably literally had to gone back to the idea of renting a grounds and then rented a you know a, a place for twenty five grand for the weekend. And I think that that a lot of the core volunteers at Cornerstone were the Japusa people. Uh, you know, ahead of I mean, we had hundreds of volunteers from all over the country, but the people who you know ran registration, ran security, ran this tent, that tent, the art, the whatever, you know, Cornerstone to them was always a mixed bag because it was a right. very it, it was a it was a work week. They didn't go and just hang out and enjoy concerts. They a lot of them worked you know long long hours every day at the event, and after twenty. Seven years, they were um, they were kind of done with it. You know, right. the the community had felt like it had kind of run its course. There just wasn't the support from the community to reimagine it completely. And um, you know, I, I mean, there's a time for everything. I n- yeah. I never envisioned that Cornerstone would last fifty years. You know, I knew it was going to, uh, especially that last five, six years, I knew we were on a kind of a, a, a countdown. The last year we ran Cornerstone, I came in, I think at the end of 2011 and said, I think it's time we pull the plug. You know, we, 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 we've had a good run. We've done 26 of these things here and we've done some elsewhere. We did five in Florida, two in North Carolina, one That's in right. Los Angeles. Your big artist fees had grown from, you know, 10 grand to 60 grand to 80 grand. And, uh, you know, it just, it, w- it wasn't sustainable. I had a, some young people on my staff who, um, you know, said, hey, what if we gave it a shot? And I thought, well, you know, maybe it's time for me to step down because, you know, I had been the visionary behind this thing for a long time. Um, in some ways, I had been able to, to grow it. You know, when I took over, we had kind of doubled and tripled it. But then also in the end, maybe some of my wildness had, you know, contributed to the demise of it. I don't know. I turned it over to some of the younger staff members and said, you know what, give it a go. Because I I thought, well, maybe, maybe they can save it. I don't know. So that last year, it was fun in a lot of ways. We scaled down. We dropped the main stage. We cut the expenses. But still... After the year was over and we sat down and went through the books, it was obvious that it just wasn't sustainable, at right. least not th- not there, In that location, what we had right. done. Right. Yeah, yeah, people, yeah. Right.
today, looking at the landscape the way it is, whether it's the church culture landscape and the problems there, the general culture at large, what are some things that you would suggest are critical, important things to include when you're thinking about putting together an event like that? And what are some maybe warnings you would say, hey, avoid, avoid this? I, I don't really know what's going on in the underground Christian music scene today, or if there is right. one. Yes. Young musicians today are more apt to try to really try their hand in the general market. And if you keep your head down a little bit, nobody's going to, you know, maybe bite your head off for having holding personal beliefs. I'd love to see something come again. I'm, I'm discouraged by the political discourse in this country. Uh, I felt that even that played some part in the end of Cornerstone, that the country was becoming more divided and that evangelicalism had kind of was becoming more conservative in some ways and that there was this kind of a fight going on. I think that it's gotten just worse and worse and worse. I'd like to think that we could put those things aside and just get together and fellowship and have fun and enjoy great music. I don't know if I believe that you can always go back and recreate something. Maybe there'll have to just be something totally no, new. Yeah, right. um, in my years of being with Res Band, I had seen quite a few fledgling attempts at Christian festivals or gatherings, whether they were weekend or overnight type deals or maybe just one day events. And so many of them were done by people that just had so much passion, but they dreamed too big right away and they got in trouble financially. I, I saw a lot of, you know, Christian promoters back in those days just lose their shirts. I mean, really nice people who literally had to sell their homes to pay their art, to pay off their debts. Mm -hmm. So I've always tried to encourage anybody who ever talked to me about events. And maybe this is just because I'm getting older, but to say, you know, start it small and just see where it goes. Maybe it'll be something big, but the idea that you've got to risk so much one time and and you're even though you have the passion it could be a big mistake Jesus told the truth Jesus showed the way there's one more thing I like to say they nailed him to the cross and they laid him in the ground they should have known you can't keep a good man down again in a heartbeat uh you know i mean there's no doubt a little bit of me died when cornerstone went away i uh you know i i, I probably struggled with the i had never even considered the idea of depression in my life i had always had you know between all the being with the band all the years in the community and the excitement of the festival which i just loved every year you know when it when those things kind of left my life 
my kids were grown, you know, I probably struggled with, I didn't even know it. My wife finally told me, you know, I think you're depressed. And I'm like, really? And I thought, you know what? I think you're right. So I, I, I struggled for a couple of years to kind of find my footing in this world um, without, you know, that, that opportunity to serve and do. And, uh, but I'm, I'm in a good place today. Thanks, Johnny. Going to step away for just a bit, but the Cornerstone commentary continues right after this. Hello, my name's Rob, and I'm one of the Patreon backers of the True Tunes podcast. I'm honored to invite you to join me in support of True Tunes by signing up on their email list. I know email is often annoying, but by being on the list, I get notified when new episodes drop and when new articles get posted at truetunes.com. Sometimes, John even sends out short notes and gives away records and swag and stuff. Super cool. But really, the point is that by staying directly connected, I know that they don't have to pay Facebook or anyone else in order for me to hear from them, and that's important. They don't send out too many emails either, and I'm always happy to get them. So really, it would be helpful if you'd join me over here. You can find the sign-up link on the front page at truetunes.com. Oh, and don't forget to add John's email address, jjt at truetunes.com, to your contacts so that the emails don't get caught in your spam filter. And if you have any feedback on the show or questions, you can email him and he'll get back to you eventually. Thanks for listening. And now back to our exploration of the festival that changed everything for so many of us. She's headed set by the drone ahead That the wages of spend is dead She figures that's better than nothing to show For the years of her tears and her sweat She can put her hand on the brake of the land Find the trees and the diesel and the smoke As we got going on this show, Bruce pointed out that one person who really should be interviewed for it was, well, me. I hadn't thought of that, so Bruce grabbed the reins as we stepped into the interview suite and he asked me some questions for a change. First of all, let's see, you were 14 going on 15 at the first Cornerstone? 13 going on 14. It 13 was, going it was on Cornerstone 14? 84, so I turned 14 July 7th and the festival was like a, a few days before that. Why Cornerstone? Did you have any knowledge of Christian rock at all? (laughs) Yes, because I started to go to these weird little Christian bookstores, which was the only place you could find a lot of this music. And there was one guy I had met named Mike Delaney, and he was the music buyer at a 
at a family bookstore kind of place but he was really weird and really loved this kind of crazy music and i just instantly loved him like we were the same kind of person and and he could sense in me that we were kindred spirits in that way and so he started feeding me the the really obscure oh you got to check out this band you got to check out this record you know like and so and his boss i found out later was this guy rush schwartz who later became my sales rep for word when i was the music buyer at wheaton religious and then at true tunes so those guys were at a Christian bookstore in Carroll Stream, which is one town north of Wheaton. And one of my youth leaders had an apartment right by the strip mall where their store was. So I, she could drive me over there and I would haunt those guys and and annoy them and (laughs) listen to records in the store. And, and Mike actually set up a booth and sold some of his collection of strange, rare, imported indie underground music at Cornerstone. So I heard about stuff from him and I heard about stuff. There was a radio station in Chicago called WCRM that started playing rock and alternative and metal stuff from nine to midnight. And then on Saturdays, uh, they would do all requests, which tended to mostly be kids like me requesting bands like Jerusalem and Servant and, and even U2 and The Call and kind of mainstream groups that had a spiritual leaning. So I just happened to be in the Chicago suburbs where Paul Emery and Harvest Productions were bringing a lot of these bands to have concerts. WCRM was a radio station that was playing a lot of this music that in a lot of cities weren't playing. And Jesus People, the community, was there and they started to put this festival together. So I heard about all of that stuff as a kid in the suburbs. And I'd heard about the festival before it happened because I had just gone to see Res Band for the first time. I saw them play with Steve Taylor and they had started to kind of get the word out that this thing was coming, this festival was coming. Um, Cornerstone was like this beacon and all I could get to was one day, the Saturday I think it was, and that was really where my life was completely set on a different path. Uh, to me, Cornerstone has always been sort of a mythic uh, thing in music. Um, you, I've, you know, you grow up hearing about Cornerstone and how amazing it is, and all these bands, you know, that's got their start here, and, and just people always talk about it. So it's had a huge impact in Christian music and probably music in general. So you came back from from the first fest. Uh, did you go to work for Wheaton Religious right away? No, I didn't. I did come home and start writing this thing that later somebody called my manifesto. It was, um, and I wrote a, a in a notebook sort of what I thought needed to happen in order for bands like Seventy Sevens to be famous. <laughs> it's kind of like what, what a teenage kid would think. Okay, what what they have to there has to be a radio station. There has to be a concert venue. There has to. I just kind of did a bunch of research, and then I won tickets to the next year's cornerstone the 85 i won full event ticket for free 
by beating Glenn Kaiser at Res Band Trivia on WCRM as a call-in, you know, competition thing, which was hilarious and um, perfect. Uh, and then in, in the process of that, I had a ticket, but no way to get there. So I called Japusa and I said, "Hey, I'm a teenage kid in the suburbs. I've got a ticket. I need to find a youth group. I'm gonna, I'll join a church if it means that they'll take me to the, to this thing. Like, I just need to find a youth group." And so they they actually went through their group sales. Thing. Thing, and they found a group from Wheaton, some guy that had bought 50 tickets or 30 tickets or something. And they said, well, here's, here's a name. And they gave me a name and a phone number of some total stranger. And I called the guy and, and his name was Matt Wilgus. And he and this group of college students were going. And so I said, well, I, you know, maybe I could go with you guys. And he had also won a ticket from the same radio station. So he offered to give me a ride and we would go together up to the radio station to pick up our tickets. And in the process of that ride, he just got to know me and how obsessive I was about this music, how, how much I'd already learned at just, you know, at that point, 15 years old. And he knew that he was going to be going off to college soon. And he said, Hey, I'm, I'm the music buyer at this bookstore in Wheaton and I take care of the music, but I also do all this other stuff. And when I go off to college, would you be interested in taking my job? So going up to the radio station to get our cornerstone tickets and back, we became friends. We were, we, we could tell that, we, you know, this was a connection. And then I had to talk my parents into letting me go to this festival with a group of complete strangers. <laughs> and so they went and met Matt and interviewed him and kind of got the feeling that he was a good guy and that these charismatic Catholic people were pretty cool. And, and so they somehow, I think it was supernatural. They, they said, yeah, we'll let our son go to this crazy rock festival with a bunch of strangers and over the span of that time then it was the following summer in 86 when i turned 16 that matt finally was transitioning off to go to college i took his job at wheaton religious and that was what led to true tunes but it, it all was centered out of people i met at or around cornerstone cornerstone to me is um like a place where you can come and really be and feel like you're part of like the body of Christ outside of the church walls where there's you know no judgment, no condemnation. And uh, I don't know, it's just like completely I've you know built relationships here that, you know, with people that have lasted from, you know, past cornerstone like during the year. And it just I don't know, it just blows my mind just the way God moves in this place. And I just, you know, because like everybody's uninhibited, you know, everybody's just smelly, nasty, sweaty, like nobody is caring like what they look like or anything like that. And it's, it just really breaks down those walls that are outside of the festival where, you know, people just don't interact with each other that way. And I think that that's just definitely something that we as believers like really need to be transparent the way we are in this festival outside. So then non-believers see that and then will really see the truth and love of Christ.
after the second year, you were feeling like you needed to create some sort of community that would sustain you from year to year because there there wasn't anything else going on in your area that was anything like the Cornerstone right. Festival. Exactly. It was interesting. Uh, this I met these people because I went to the festival with this group I didn't know. And I had such an amazing experience, not just the music. The music was incredible, but then I just, I met people that became like family to me. It was so powerful. And in this environment, I found people that I could really open up with. And um, I, I formed some very deep friendships, several of which I still have to this day. And when it was over at the last day and we were all leaving, it was devastating. None of us wanted to go. So we, we were slow in packing up our stuff. And then we said, well, you know, let's go to Lake Michigan because this is when the festival was still in the north, uh, kind of the north suburbs of Chicago. So we went to Lake Michigan and we just hung out by the beach and made sandcastles. And I remember Matt made this big kind of Holy Spirit fish shape in the sand and we were just playing in the sand. Then we went to a Denny's or some kind of diner to get food and the whole place was full of people that had just left Cornerstone. You could tell, I mean, filthy, scuzzy looking, <laughs> strung out you know, people. And it was, uh, we, you could just tell. And we walked in, it was like, hey, we're all here. We don't want to go home. Like we, this, this buzz was just palpable. And so the spirit of that was meant that we were all just hopping table to table and who are you and who are you and where do you live? And here's my phone number. And, and there, there's no email at this point. There's no social media. There's no way that we're going to keep in touch unless we actually find out how to write people letters. But I said, man, there's got to be a way that, that this community could stay connected. And I saw in having done some of this research that magazines were a big part of that, you know, that that was how the counterculture in the sixties had connected was through magazines like Rolling Stone and cream and, uh, activist magazines around issues. So Cornerstone had done that cooks Cornerstone. The name, the festival was based on Cornerstone magazine, which had its roots in the counterculture of the Jesus movement. And I thought maybe, maybe my generation needs a, a new way of talking and thinking about music that, we could kind of use that as a gathering point. So the idea for True Tunes was we could we could keep the cornerstone buzz going all year with a subset of that, uh, a, a gathering point. The thing about Cornerstone was I was positive that I could bring anybody from my high school to that festival, and it didn't matter what their beliefs were, it didn't matter what kind of music they liked, anybody would feel like Cornerstone was cool. And then because of that, we could hang out and we could have we could talk about anything. And as I talked to artists, I found out that there there was one that they all mentioned, not all, several mentioned Greenbelt in England as uh, something that was that was similar to Cornerstone. And I heard about one called Black Stump in Australia that was kind of a similar sort of DNA. I got to know Henry Wong, and Henry was the original director of Cornerstone, and so uh, I probably started to get to know Henry around the time I was 16 when I started uh, to be the music buyer at that bookstore. And so um, I had gotten to know Henry through that. And by the time I went to launch True Tunes in 89, I launched it by going to Henry and saying, hey, I'd like to really take over the music sales at the festival and I'll create a store and I'll just give you guys the profits. I'll take a little percentage and give everything else to you guys because I know that this is how I'm going to launch True Tunes, and, and he agreed. So there was Harvest Rock Syndicate in Chicago. There was Harvest Productions bringing in bands. There was this radio station. There was Japusa, and it was all just kind of 
uh, this soup, and I was just this kid kind of soaking it up. in this little community that was able to come together and it was so tiny and when we got to come to Cornerstone it just kind of ballooned everyone from all over these little tiny towns these small churches these little youth groups came together and were able to be this big solid family and all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't so alone anymore that I wasn't the only one that was a Christian in my high school um, it meant the world to me that there were people that were making music that loved the things that I loved and, and uh, it formed a direction and a path in my life that I wouldn't have been able to find any other way. What do you think caused the festival to to start skewing more and more to, towards alternative? Because in the beginning, I was going back and I was researching, you know, looking for video and and and, and the early festivals. Yeah, there was there was DA, there was seventy sevens, uh, Carrie Livgren, but then there was also Margaret Becker and Russ Taff and people like that. Uh, was it just a question of there not being? enough alternative acts to, to book or did they just not know that that something like Cornerstone was out there? First, I think the festival had only about 15 or 20 slots the first year or two, you know, because it was two and a half days long instead of four days. And there was the main stage and then there was the evening encore and the evening encore also had acts in the afternoon. I do think when you look back at what the supply side was when it comes to how many artists fit the bill for what Cornerstone would want to be. And, and it was eclectic. They would have, uh, yeah, a couple of mainstream Christian artists. Although I think even by those standards, a Margaret Becker or a Leslie Phillips, by Cornerstone standards were fairly mainstream, but by CCM standards were pretty left edge. Like they were rock. They were you know, to the Christian bookstore scene, they were on the left side of things. To Cornerstone World, they were on the conservative side. You know? But but then you had Bob Bennett and people like that that were, came from the Jesus movement that were playing that acoustic stage. But you also had, I remember seeing Reverend Milton Brunson and the Thompson Community Singers, you know, a full-blown black gospel choir from Chicago at, at one of those early years. And it just was incredible. I loved that kind of music, but I never... Like to see Cornerstone invest in bringing a full blown gospel choir was huge to me. This was punk, heavy metal, pop, singer songwriter, gospel. They were making space intentionally for stuff, even if most of the people kind of would have been happy with just a narrower slice of that. Cornerstone was kind of pushing us to hear things wider than what we even knew we needed to be hearing. And I think that that's where like a Charlie Peacock comes in. And Charlie Peacock, if you strictly listen to the music, was very pop. That that was not alternative music. It was just great, great pop music. But it was so good. It was so well done. And the audience had developed, at Cornerstone, had developed an appetite for appreciating quality, not just 
stuff being weird or stuff being loud or stuff being extreme. And so I think that was why as there was more stages and more slots, you started to see some respect for some of the mainstream stuff, a Rich Mullins. Somebody like that would find a lot of traction at a place like Cornerstone. And I will be my brother's keeper Not the one who judges him Won't despise him for his weakness Won't regard him for his strength I will take away his freedom I will help him learn to stand And I will, I will be my brother's keeper I think that Cornerstone is really all about friendship to me. Uh, you know, it's the one time of year that all my friends come together, touring bands, people from other places all around the country, and we all get to hang out for a week and just, you know, make new friends and have old friends around too. Now, in the 90s, when, when they move to central Illinois and they've got many more stages and they've got a whole city that kind of springs up around this stuff, that's when you see the addition of a whole day for tooth and nail stuff. You also, if you look at the industry back then, you see this explosion of indie alternative uh, stuff. And that becomes a draw for a lot of kids. They're, they're not interested now in, in the, the mainstream stuff. They're interested in the, the the skater punk and all that kind of stuff. So I do think that they're in the nineties, as it grew, there was a little bit less of that. We're all here to listen to everything and we're going to all go to all the shows. And it became a little bit more like, okay, now there's the gallery stage for these people and the underground stage for these people and the main stage for these people. And there's some folks that just, they would stay in one place the whole time. And it lost some of that uh, magic of those early years of the serendipity of just hearing something that you didn't even know you were going to like. first year that Cornerstone moved to Bushnell, Illinois. So when I got to Peoria, I realized that Cornerstone wasn't really in Peoria. I wasn't very organized. <laughs> so I actually hitchhiked down to Bushnell. When I went there, I was mostly interested in eventually starting a radio station. Um, but when I got there, I just couldn't believe how many cool bands there were and how many people were Christian wanted to create music that was relevant and you know what was going on in the mainstream. And I was literally blown away by it. So I came back thinking, you know, I want to do a label that's, that wants to support some of these bands. I honestly think if it wasn't for Cornerstone, I don't even know if Tooth and Nail would ever come into existence. I mean, God can do what he wants, and, but I feel like he used Cornerstone to inspire me to even do a record company.
when did you take on consulting and working with the festival through the whole year? True Tunes was purchased by another company in late 95. And they had plans to expand it and franchise it and expand the magazine. But within a year, all of that had changed to we're going to close everything down except truetunes.com. And they were going to launch the website. And the store started to close. And by late 97 into 98, everything that was True Tunes was gone except for truetunes.com. I was kind of in a panic because <laughs> I didn't really know how to do anything else. You know, I, I was, did, I, I'd had offers to go to Nashville and work for record companies that I had just never even taken seriously, but it was really eating at me. I was not in a good place. I was very frustrated with how the whole thing had gone down. I was really disappointed because I had lost control. I was, I was an emotional wreck and my wife and I, uh, the wayside, uh, you know, sort of an acoustic version, we did a show with Glenn Kaiser and Glenn ended up, and, and Wendy was there as well, and they ended up spending the night after the show at our house. And he could tell, he knew me well enough, he could tell that something was wrong, and I told him what was going on. The next day, he went back downtown to Japusa and had a pastor's meeting, and he was a little bit late for it. Um, turns out he had just missed, by being late, he had just missed that John Heron, who, the former drummer, you know, who we've been talking about, who was the director of the festival, had just told the board he needed help with the festival. He said that they finally had enough in the budget to hire somebody. He didn't think they had anybody in the community that was really who they needed. They needed to look outside of the community to find somebody that understood the music business, that understood uh, marketing, that understood the artists and all that kind of stuff. And uh, from what I heard, he said something like, you know, we need somebody like John Thompson, but clearly we couldn't get John, you know, and, and Glenn walks in and he's like, Hey guys, I, I, could we pray really quick? Cause John Thompson really needs work. <laughs> and they were like, what? Like John had just told us this. So then I get, uh, when I got into the office, I had a fax, a page and an email from John Heron saying, please call me right away. Um, before Christmas break even happened, we figured out a way for me to come on staff as sort of a director of communications and marketing. And, and I just helped with all kinds of stuff from being the host of the main stage and the MC to helping with booking, to helping with how the industry partnered with, um, I mean, how the festival partnered with the industry, uh, finding you know, sponsors and things like that to how, you know, getting a big video screen paid for and, um, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. And I was, I was basically full time for several years and then even after those years, I still stayed on staff. Thank you very much. It's great to be back here. Be a friend, make a friend. This song is called It Could Be A Whole Lot Worse. Awake. You can make your bed in hell and wake 
up at heaven's gate Think of all that we missed today That lay right before our eyes Think of all that fades away And that hard press compromise And this is dangerous terrain We're attempted to traverse It's a crying shame, but it could be a lot worse. Hey, this is Todd Zeller. I had the great experience of three cornerstones, 1994, 2000, and 2001. Really, the greatest memory was meeting Gene face-to-face for the first time of Adam again and the Lost Dogs. I met him at the merch table, which was just awesome. I had told him that I was from California and we had literally just moved to Nashville the day before. Unpacked our U-Haul and then drove from Nashville to Cornerstone and met two friends there who were traveling from South Carolina. Meeting Gene and talking about how much I loved what he was doing with the Lost Dogs, especially the song Eleanor It's Raining Now. He actually said, Hey, do you have your camera with you? Let's bring, let's, let's go out and shoot something while the dogs are all here. And, you know, I somewhat scoffed, like, come on, I've got a VHS camera. It's a piece of junk, and I just couldn't see it. But he was really gracious and made me laugh, and we talked about the Lost Dogs music, and of course Adam again, and all of his work down at the green room. So that's a special memory for me. But Cornerstone as a whole, I was blown away at the music, the art, the speakers and special lecturers. You know, what I really was drawn to probably overall was, of course, the music, but I really did appreciate sort of the, the hippie vibe, the, the dirt, the grime, the stench. Thanks, John, and thanks, Cornerstone. We miss you. Evolutionists, creationists, perverts, slumlords, deadbeats, athletes, Protestants, and Catholics, housewives, neophytes, pro-choice, pro-life, misogynists, monogamists, philanthropists, black and whites. Breathe deep, breathe deep the breath of God. Breathe deep, breathe deep the breath of God. You and John talk about this a lot, and we've talked in the past about the way the festival had to reinvent itself after touring basically shut down in the post-9-11 era. So how did the festival respond to that? How did, you, how did they keep things going? I don't know that there was ever an actual cogent response. I think there was a lot of instinctive reactions, and some of them were well, you know, this band is going to cost $90,000 now because they're just that big and that's what the market will bear and we just have to have them so we'll pony up and pay that kind of money. Then there were other times where it's like, well, this artist, you know, they're going to cost, it's going to cost us 2500 bucks, and we don't know how many people still really care, but we do. You know, maybe this, this particular artist is a risk. You know, <laughs> there's some things that might go sideways by having this person around, but, 
you know, we love this artist and, we, you know, part of the family. And so we're going to keep investing and supporting that. And the, the decisions about who was playing at Cornerstone were very few of them were marketing based. It was a lot more relationally based. There were a handful that would say, okay, well, we really want to get, we want to have a few of the names so that the youth group, the youth leaders will bring their kids, you know, like we want to have a few of those things, but there was not a, a, an awareness of how fundamentally things were changing. And the artists, I think also some, some of them that were really key to that side of the festival's success didn't understand that by saying yes to competing Christian festivals and saying yes to things like Warped Tour, they were eventually going to uh, undermine the thing that had really gotten them there in the first place. And we saw the same thing happen in terms of industry when Walmart and Target and mainstream record stores started selling the music that had previously only been available through these kind of mom and pop Christian bookstores, most of those mom and pop Christian bookstores eventually went out of business. And now you have to buy everything on Amazon. And when you live and die by the power of economics and free markets, then there's a lot more dying than there is living. And um, so it's exciting at the time that you feel like, oh, wow, this growth is ex- is explosive and really cool. And we're just going to say yes to all of the growth. But sometimes you got to think about what are the costs on the other end. And the thing that made Cornerstone really different was that they didn't, really didn't care about making money. That wasn't their goal. And if they were... Right then they would have made some different choices. And I think it, it reveals uh, the unavoidable demise of something that big reveals an underlying thing that I've been thinking about, writing about, talking about, <laughs> obsessing over uh, ever since it happened and shortly before, which is what what are our blind spots when it comes to lo- allowing something so important to us to get so big that it's going to crush us it's in one way or another it's go, it cannot survive and i think that john when he talks about the fact that the overhead that it cost to maintain that property meant that the, it was impossible for them to rein it back to whatever the right scale would have been um, because that scale would not have even, there's no way for that level to have sustained the cost of maintaining that property that's just an economic reality so if that had been understood 10 years earlier then maybe they could have divested themselves of that property and moved the thing back to chicago or something like that and made it a smaller event but when we borrow definitions of success from the sort of institutional side of things the commercial side of things and apply them to the spiritual human side of things then we're like oh well the only way for this thing to be a success is for it to be big and then sometimes, yeah, it gets its own sense of momentum and we just can't go backwards. We can't undo what we've done. It just has to go away. And then we have to think, well, where do we go from here? What have we learned? And if we go and do something again, what do we do differently? How can we possibly you know, become more mindful of these things so that next time we don't make those same mistakes? And I think a lot of artists are doing that now as some of them who had big record deals, they had huge tours, they spent a lot of money, and now they're out there going, okay, well, we're going to pull this all in a little bit. You know, we're going to make this more about how we connect with the fans and what, you know, where are we spending our money and what's really, what really matters about this show and what doesn't. And you see that kind of happening uh, on that level. And I think that I'm thinking about that and across my life. What's the right size for something to be for it to really be healthy and functional? With everything you got, with everything you are, 
This is Garrett Godfrey with some memories about Cornerstone. Obviously, the incredible breadth of bands that you could see at Cornerstone, bands that probably would never come to your hometown, was spectacular. Big name bands, but also tons of small, underground, unsigned bands. All of the generator stages and small stages were incredible. The other thing that really stood out to me, though, were all of the chance encounters, like running into the guys from Dietophobia who had just on their drive to Cornerstone decided to change their name from Donderfliegen. And I actually bought their cassette of really early style industrial music. From them, there's like 250 in the world, and I bought it at Cornerstone from the band. I heard this music coming from a boombox in one of the tents, and it was mesmerized, and it was the trip-hop of Paradigm Shift before they'd ever been picked up by InSoul, and I was able to buy their four-song CD from the band. Those kind of encounters you just didn't get anywhere else, and I loved that. Why not just hand it off to somebody like AudioFeed? I honestly think that one of the things that probably hinders an event like Audio Feed most is the shadow of that hugeness of Cornerstone that it's forming under. And so the mothership was so big and so impactful in different ways that it's almost impossible not to compare something so close to it to it. And then those comparisons lead people, if you're not careful in the values you're comparing, to think, well, this is a failure, or this is smaller, or this is puny, or this is whatever. It's not fill in the blank. It's not, And so that's what I mean by being careful about how we define success. And I think that there's uh, there were certain people that just were like, we are not, it's like, it, the early versions of audio feed reminded me of me at 15 with all those people at the Denny's after going to the beach going, we just can't let it go. We can't let it go. We gotta do something. But it, but the challenge is to say, well, what does this thing need to be? What can it be? What should it be? Versus what is this compared to something from the past, from 10 years ago and farther? And can we evaluate this on its own merits and say, this is what this thing should be and can be, and it's beautiful in its own right. And that's the, that is really hard for us to do. It was hard even for Cornerstone to do when, it, when the Cornerstone 2012 version of itself had to compare itself to Cornerstone 2001 version of itself. You know, and it was feeling like, oh, man, this is feeling kind of puny or something. And then some of us were going, no, this feels great because it feels like the, the Cornerstone 98 or 91 version of itself you know like this is and but but man there's this is the challenge and so i think sometimes telling the old stories is really valuable and and hearing this stuff is really important but now what we got to do is look forward and say okay well let's disabuse ourselves of all of the previous things and, and imagine what what do we need to do now and i think even at the last festival i said some things i was challenging people to take this 
frustration and go do something kind of like when I was 15 and I'm like, I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm not satisfied to only have cornerstone once a year. I want to have it all the time. So I went and started something. I wanted people to go take the spirit of what that was to Omaha and to Florida and to California and to Indiana and wherever they were and to do it, you know, whether that it didn't have to be something huge, it just needed to be something. And I think that that's somewhat what audio feed is. And I think that's also what Furnace Fest is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's bigger. It's, it's a different subset of music, but I think that's what that is as well. And I've heard of other things, but it's just, we're not, you know, what, what, anything that compares itself back to this original mothership is going to suffer. Cornerstone for me, it's always been a place for me to to meet new people who are doing interesting things and trying to uh, live their lives and kind of go in a similar direction. Uh, I always see friends here. Um, I really feel like this has become kind of maybe like a new New Year's for me in some ways. And uh, now it's, it's meant a lot to me over the years. And uh, I'm, I'm going to miss this thing um, pretty sincerely. But I, I think... Uh, I think God has other things in the works, and uh, I'm sure there's a reason for all this, and I, I'm kind of excited to see what's next, but it, it's definitely a bittersweet thing for me. I'm thinking about you, you're always on my mind, I'm crying just for you. What are some of the other early moments that sort of sustained you for for the calendar year? I think I talked about the one also in our, our very first episode with Charlie Peacock. His acoustic trio set in, I think it was 90, was unbelievable. <laughs> it still ranks as one of the most incredible concerts I've ever seen. Just tears through probably a third of the show. Um, and I was going through a, a pretty big crisis in my mind because I had launched True Tunes, which in my mind, it was going to be a side thing. Like my music as an artist was, was the primary focus. And then True Tunes was going to be the day job that was going to sustain what I was going to do creatively as a songwriter and an artist. So that was one, because now I was sensing, I'm like, oh no, <laughs> I've just kneecapped <laughs> myself. Like, like this thing is going to grow much faster than my music is. And, um, I also had a girl that I was crazy about and I had, I felt hopeless about like, cause she was connected to this other guy who was not treating her well. And I thought this is just not going to work out. And, you know, um, so I didn't know what to do about that. And, uh, I'm listening to Charlie's songs and it's just crushing me. And, and, uh, I talked to him at, at one point and he said, Hey, after the show, come, come to the hotel. Let's talk after the show. So I drove over to his hotel and waited. And at about four in the morning, we finally sat by the pool and 
I just gushed all these problems I was <laughs> dealing with. And, um, not only had I seen a show that was one of the most important shows of my life because it stripped this music down to just an acoustic guitar, a couple songs with Mike Rowe playing an electric guitar, vocal harmonies, and just hearing the essence of songs. It was so important for me to have heard that. So informative. And then to have that guy sit with me next to a pool in the middle of the night and let me bear my soul with all these teenage problems, you know, and honor that, have him honor it at a level that I did not deserve and give me some advice where he said, you know, whatever door opens, just walk through it with integrity and do your best, whether that's professionally or even personally, you don't know what's going on with this person. So just love her, respect her, treat her as best you can, and just trust that things will work out and don't worry. Don't borrow problems from the future. Just he was basically saying, man, just relax, <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just chill kid, you know, but, and that was something about Cornerstone that was completely unique. The artists were right there with everybody. And that was something I learned from. And I did all the time. Like I would, I would make myself as available as I possibly could. Um, I was never, I never considered myself to be on any kind of pedestal. Um, I know I wasn't, I was just another fan like everybody else, but anybody that wanted to talk about anything, I knew who knows what this might mean to this person because it had right. meant so much to me when I was at that point. We all, all year long, were kind of alone. Most of us were kind of on our, now I was a little different because a lot of people would come and see me because they were playing at the club or we were hanging out at True Tunes. But a lot of these artists, they didn't get that kind of fraternity feeling right. the rest of the year. And so Cornerstone was not only a chance for them to connect with their fans who were increasingly becoming more familiar, like friends, but also other artists and people, dorks like me, um, it was definitely a family reunion kind of vibe. I was surprised at the last 10 years or so at the small percentage of the relative crowd that actually engaged in the, in the seminars. Uh, it was still, you know, some of them were, were fairly well attended, but when you have 25,000 people at the festival, those seminars should have been all, every tent should have been overflowing and they weren't. And I think that early on, it was kind of like, you, you know, you were pretty much going to at least one seminar every day. Everybody kind of went to the seminars. Um, and I think everybody sort of understood that there was a value. We needed to take advantage of the fact that we had access to these teachers at this thing. The nineties generation, I don't think saw that. Um, they might have flocked to some controversial speakers. I remember Jay Baker when he came, who was who was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed what he had to say, and but it was mostly the controversy that drew people. Um, I remember David Dark coming and doing a really cool seminar about the theology of the Simpsons, and a title like that would be really curious, and it would draw a crowd like, "What? That's theology of the Simpsons?" And that was great, and I'm glad that people would come. But they needed to be there for all of that stuff, and it felt to me towards the end that the crowd the a big chunk of whatever that the larger part of that crowd is was not really recognizing the importance of learning and the seminars uh the what we ended up calling cornerstone university uh man we had 300 hours of seminars <laughs> something like 20 25 different venues that would have been a conference today if it was just the teaching it would be one of the most significant teaching events in all of the world without a single band playing 
And a lot of the fans just really neglected that towards the end, and that was a real tragedy. And I think that had more of them not been neglecting that, they might have developed a taste for learning that would have been good because it might have helped enhance some of the discernment (laughs) that a lot of them would have needed over the last few years. Bumps at night, streams of light, reminds you that the end is near. Stomach lurches on the thought that the clouds you see ain't ever clearing. something to go on and uh, you know there's so many memories just when I found out this was the last one I cried and uh, I was kind of in shock you know this is our home just thinking about all the people we've met you know all of the uh, the bands that have got to start here and to have careers because uh, Cornerstone and Glenn and Wendy and John were kind enough to and had the vision enough to start this wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, my my son graduated high school this year, and uh, I went to his uh, graduation. And, and he went to a really small school that was, uh, you know, for kids that just didn't really fit in big public schools. And, and it was a public school, but it was a real small class size, and a lot of, uh, you know, what you call misfits, and. The girl that gave uh, the valedictorian speech, she got up and her speech was called The Island of Misfit Toys. And she talked about that how that place was a very safe haven for kids like them. And that they finally found a place they belonged. I started thinking about this place, and this is kind of like The Island of Misfit Toys also. It's a place, um, it's a place where Rich, poor, street people, people who are comfortable, you know, nerds, cool people, goth, quirky people. We can share, we can be here and we can share each other's faith, our wins, our losses, and uh, without fear. And uh, as a band, you know, we've been able to, to, to play here many, many times. and through all of our phases, through whatever was going on in our personal lives, whatever was going on in our band situations, the good and the bad, 
Cornerstone, they never judged us. They just loved us and brought us back and let us play and kept encouraging us. And uh, I just cannot thank them enough for giving us a safe haven to grow up in and for our kids to grow up in. And I hope that uh, someday we can find something else as wonderful as this. I'm not sure we can, but I, ho I hope that at some point something else will crop up because this has been a wonderful, wonderful ride. So uh, thanks, Cornerstone. Thanks to Cruiser for doing this. What was the last evening like? Man, it was hard. Uh, you know, the choir was the first band to play the first day of the first Cornerstone in 84 um, as youth choir. And that last day, we all, I mean, it was heavy. It was, it was, it was like being at, at a funeral or something most of the day, or uh, it was hard to explain. I've never experienced anything like it for sure. And I could barely look people in the eyes. I was exhausted from from it by the end of the day and i also was kind of i think uh, in some ways john and some of the other people were glad to have me be the mc as much as possible because i could absorb <laughs> the stuff that they that they didn't want to at sometimes like um i just threw myself into it to be sort of the the buffer for the crowd and i i was completely spent by the end of that um we did a communion service. We did a prayer time. We did a, um, you know, several ceremonial things throughout the day, uh, and then it was this kind of final farewell, this commission. And there's no way to really prepare for the for that experience until it happens. Oh, uh -huh. 
to Heaven help me Sad side For the words I never would say If I were to bid farewell to you today A glad sigh for the promise of a new day If I were to bid farewell and fly away A sad song for the songs I never would sing If I were to bid farewell to you today A glad song as the bells beyond the night ring If I were to bid farewell and fade away If I were to bid farewell and fade away If I were to bid farewell fade away God bless you guys. Good night. weird thing was like the next day you know the sun comes up and life goes on and you're like wait i'm supposed to live now like i'm, I'm supposed to like we're supposed to actually function and i had to go back out to the grounds to pick up some things and and uh you know pack up the van and that last trip was was even harder in some ways because i think it was just me and the kids and michelle and i think going back in the morning was like oh wait I definitely felt like, well, something else is going to happen. At this point, we had already moved to Nashville about five years earlier. So I had already experienced the, the sense of transition that when one part of your life ends, something else starts. But I did have this feeling like, okay, this, is, this has to end. Okay, what has to continue? Something has to continue. And I'm, I'm here for a reason. Like, I, I'm not, I don't feel like we're all, that there's just an accident. And so... Um, I started right away not thinking, okay, we have to bring this back. And that was probably why I resisted some of the online stuff and some of the clamoring about save it and whatever. It's like, no, no, let, let's let this thing go. But the spirit of it, the what are the, what are the critical elements that really are important? Let's identify those and let's let ourselves feel hungry for those things again. And then... Let's pursue that hunger in a new way because that hunger is not going anywhere. Amen. Good night. If the soapbox I pull out at the end of these podcast episodes was actually a soapbox, it would no doubt be covered in stickers given to me by bands that I met at Cornerstone. 
This soapbox is really an extension of the passion, mission, and purpose that got under my skin all those years ago as I sat on a cinder block, almost 14 years old, listening to Glenn Kaiser teach about music, musicians, and ministry in a shed on a hot afternoon. Cornerstone. From the epic main stage concerts to the intimate gallery stage moments to the controversial seminars and heated debates conducted right outside of striped circus tents, from the bliss of the first cool breeze of the evening, the smell of the funnel cakes and the sound of over the Rhine, to the knot I felt form in my gut every time a mosh pit had to be stopped so some injured kid could be attended to. From the tear-soaked memorial shows for fallen friends, to the joy of marriages, proposals, and little green mohawked babies being pulled in wagons, the whole thing absolutely ruined me, and maybe you, for anything resembling safe, predictable, normal, faith-based music or Christian subculture. This soapbox is built, in so many ways, out of the words, the prayers, the ideas, the joys, and the failures that an insane, impossible, irresponsible gathering built in my heart and mind. I think it's important to consider what made something like Cornerstone possible and what made it so powerful. And while we're at it, why is it that so many of us feel such a hunger for an event that was so inconvenient, uncomfortable, unpredictable, and even unsafe? First, I think we must remember that Cornerstone could only be as radical and revolutionary as it was because it was birthed by a community of people who were moved by mission and not market. There was no profit motive here. Actually, there was almost an aversion to profit. Whenever I saw the organizers actually make a little bit of money on the event, it was immediately followed by questions about how they could make the experience better for the crowd. The decisions the organizers of Cornerstone made for better or worse, were oriented around their purpose, and that purpose was to spark community, deepen relationships, spark imaginations, and to welcome people into the kind of upside-down kingdom kind of love living that they had experienced. That's what made the event more than a festival. The world is full of festivals today, and most of them feel more like Walmart than Woodstock. Today's festivals are often expensive, highly curated ways to hear short sets by dozens of artists in a couple of days. Cornerstone, on the other hand, was more like a musical and spiritual chemistry experiment. Thousands of people showed up on a piece of land with instruments, some stages, some electricity, and a sense of shared vision. We may have had a few artists that we were super excited to see, but we would always end up finding new things to love, and the fans were as much a part of the creativity as the bands. Not unlike cosplayers dressing up for a Comic-Con, the crowd at Cornerstone was part of the experience. They built it. From their crazy outfits, to the generator stages, to the mosh pits, to the art gallery, the whole thing was like one big sloppy group art project. Today, as we consume music on our personal devices, played through our earbuds, and we get most of our information from within individual silos, we need things like Cornerstone to break us out of those ruts. We need people to get up in our space, to offend us, to stop by our campsite and ask for a sandwich or some deodorant. If you were there, we need your help to keep that spirit alive in this toxic world. Please don't forget. If you were not there, but you feel hungry for the kind of gritty, challenging, soulful music and conversation that will actually satisfy you in the deepest of ways that will help you become and remain connected to your diverse, difficult, and doubtful neighbor, 
then I invite you to stay connected with us here as we continue on this journey. No, listening to a podcast, participating in a social media group, and reading emails from a list is not the same thing as being at a festival, but it's a start. This month also marks three years since we relaunched this version of True Tunes, this podcast, this virtual festival of conversations and songs. Bruce and I have so enjoyed digging in this dirt, listening for the deeper sounds. If you were a part of the Cornerstone experience, I hope you feel its spirit in what we're doing here. If you were not, though, I hope this trip through our bizarre family album might provide some perspective on what it is we have been trying to accomplish here. Because, to be honest, I don't think we've even scratched the surface yet. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. I noticed a spot on it where I just might be able to fit this Dead Artist Syndrome sticker. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. To all of the fans and friends who posted great clips online, thanks. This is certainly not a definitive history of the festival, and in no way a suggestion that these were its best moments even. With over 250,000 people attending over nearly three decades, that would have been impossible. We have tried to convey a sense of what made the festival so special, though, and what we might want to carry forward of its legacy. And if all this talk of festivals has you itching to get outside, meet some new people, and hear some lovely music, you really need to check out Over the Rhine's Nowhere Else Festival, coming to Clinton County, about 45 miles east of Cincinnati this Labor Day weekend. They have assembled an incredible lineup, of course, including Hayes Carl, Courtney Marie Andrews, John Fulbright, Iris Dement, Carolina Story, The Wine Tree, and others. You can learn more and order your tickets at NowhereElseFestival.com, and I will see you there. For those of you whose tastes run a bit more toward the hard rock, metal, and punk side of things, you'll want to seriously consider being at Furnace Fest in Birmingham, Alabama, September 23rd through the 25th, where Sunny Day Real Estate, Thrice, Manchester Orchestra, Alex is on Fire, The Ghost Inside, Mastodon, Descendants, Maylene and the Sons of Disaster, Demon Hunter, and so many others will be playing. Hit up FurnaceFest.us for all those details. We'll have links to those events, the Cornerstone documentary I made with my friend Jeremy Godowskis, and a list of at least some of the music we used, and a massive Cornerstone Jukebox Spotify mix on the show notes page for this episode, so don't miss that. Also, please take a few minutes to sign up for our email list, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, find and follow us on Facebook at TrueTunes Now, and if you've been thinking about joining our group of Patreon supporters, now would be a great time to do so. To all of you who have already done all of those things, thanks. This podcast was produced by me, JJT, and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 372. 206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to stay hydrated, use your sunscreen, don't stand too close to the speakers, and make sure to eat something healthy today. Oh, and if you have a golf cart, remember not to drive it recklessly. And if someone is missing an orange plaid sofa, we found it in the middle of Lake Wildwood on fire. Peace.
wouldn't watch a movie at a music festival. I don't understand that. Well, that was the great thing about Cornerstone is it uh, was a home for those of us who didn't fit in. I broke my ankle here and uh, I think it was 1985. I uh, jumped off the stage. I did that part on purpose. It was a, a little kid had stuck under the rope. I didn't see him, so I, I, I tried to avoid him and, and uh, broke my ankle. I still have the, uh, the scar there. It's hard to see now, but... It's tough to see this thing go, isn't it? It is. It's very tough, yeah. So do you appreciate what, are you trying to get us to cry on I camera know, or something? No. I'm not into rock and roll because I never was. And that wasn't in my era. But when I can see people can come up and turn their lives over and praise God and put the worldly sins behind them, it's, it's a miracle. If you like rock and roll, let's talk about solid rock. Jesus is the solid rock.